Um, today, we get to start a brand new sermon series, a brand new series called Words of Life. And so we've been um, in various things over the years so far, and now we get this kind of extended run where throughout the summer, we're going to be doing Words of Life, which is, as the screen says, wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And this series uh, I'm excited about, it's really wisdom for living. It's a, an intensely practical series, as the book of Proverbs is. You open up Proverbs, and it, it isn't high-minded theology. It's, it's down-in-the-weeds life practicality. And so in saying that, we also acknowledge that before we get into all the practicalities of the next um, six weeks or so, uh, we will also acknowledge before any of that that absent Jesus, none of this matters. Absent the gospel being true and it being applied to our lives, none of this practical stuff matters. You can work as hard as you want to work at being better, and that isn't the point of the scripture. The scripture says, rest in Christ, and then all of this stuff is the extra. And so never come in here during the next six, seven weeks and go, I think the point of like religion is this stuff. No. The point of why we're here every single Sunday is Christ. It's Christ resurrected. It's our redemption. And so hear that first. If you hear nothing else, that's what we're here for. That's where we're going to start. So various voices over the next uh, several weeks, you're going to get various opinions and voices and and experiences. This is an exciting part of the year for me, uh, not only because I take a couple weeks off of preaching, but because I get to hear other people's voices. Do you know, if you get tired of of my voice, imagine how tired I am of my voice. Um, And so we are an elder-led church. As you saw, we... uh, voted in Rob over the last week, and he's one of our elders now. And one of the beauty uh, and beautiful parts of being an elder-led church is it isn't about one personality. It isn't about one voice. It isn't about one communicator. We are absolutely um, organized in such a way that is, is the reality of how we function. That Ken's voice and Craig's voice and Terrence's voice and Rob's voice, these, these are the, the voices that make up the people who have chosen to give their lives to serve this body for this season. So I'm excited that over the next few weeks, we're going to get to hear a variance of perspectives. And so uh, that should be a blessing to us and something we look forward to. And so I just want to say that up front, because um, for me, there are a lot of churches out there where your pastor will preach 48, 49, 53, 75 weeks a year. And it's not healthy. And so every time I take a couple weeks away, people go, wait, are you something wrong? Are you going to preach again? What happened to you? And it's the most beautiful thing when the church is functioning well. There's a variance of voices, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's a great representation of how we're actually run. And so I'm looking forward to you getting to hear from various people in the community. I think it's going to bless you. Today, we're going to be talking about generosity. And the question I'll be asking at the beginning, and I'll ask it again at the end, and so listen to this one. What if generosity was the cure to your discontentment? What if generosity was the cure to your discontentment? We'll go to the scripture. Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Bible says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. That's it. There's a lot in there, but that's it. So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, money. And money makes everyone squirm, makes everyone uncomfortable. Uh, Inevitably, someone uh, thinks, maybe I should send him an email. I brought a guest one day and you talk about money. The real question we're asking is how do we honor the Lord with our wealth? That's what the the scripture says. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And so a few uh, just kind of disclaimers, qualifiers. First thing, this is not a prosperity gospel. That is a growing popularity in our world. This is not prosperity gospel, which says if you live right, it results in greater blessings. It's not that. This is a gospel of prosperity that we live under here, which says we get blessed by Christ, and as a result, we desire to live right. And so, so never hear it the other way. Jesus gave his whole life for us. That is our prosperity. That is the end of our prosperity. Nothing more, nothing less. We have Christ. 
So for a true Christian, we will start with this. Life isn't about doing things to get greater blessing, but about being a greater blessing as a result of what Christ did for us. Life isn't about doing things to get a greater blessing, but about being a greater blessing as a result of what Christ did for us. And that's the the foundation on which we stand when we talk about money. We have to start there. A couple other things that uh, we have to be clear about, because I will get emails about these things, so let's be clear. Wealth is not necessarily evidence of faithfulness any more than poverty is evidence of sin. doesn't mean that it can't ever be the case, but it's not a hard and fast rule. Second thing, money is not evil. Scripture says the love of money is the root of evil. We'll talk about that next year. i got a whole series planned. You're going to love this. Money is not evil, and being wealthy is not the sign of someone who is, like, sold out or isn't living righteously. We have two camps we usually fall into. We look at people who have more than us, and we think they must be doing something kind of unethical. We look at people who have less than us and go, they must not be doing uh, the right things morally, and yet we're right in the perfect middle, and all of us are in a different spot, and we all look up and down and go, eh. Reality is Jesus was homeless and David was king and they were both beloved by God. Jesus was homeless, David was king, both had access, both are examples, both are these beautiful pictures. All through scripture you see the rich, you see the poor, faithfulness is not uh, evidenced by finances. So, what is clear, now that the disqualifiers and the, the disclaimers and the whatevers are out of the way, what is clear is the scripture says whatever we do have, whatever wealth we do have, honor God. And so we're going to figure out what it means to honor God and how we do that. First thing we have to look at, though, is the text says, honor God with your first fruits. First fruits. What is this? So we go to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it's going to explain what first fruits are. And I think this is really important. And if we, if we miss this, we miss the whole thing. So, so let's read this together. Deuteronomy 26 says, when you have entered the land of the Lord your God, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. So here's the context. The people of God are in Egypt and then they're enslaved in Egypt and then they're freed from Egypt by God and they cross the Red Sea. You remember the whole thing, the plagues in the Red Sea and they're freed from slavery And then they're set off into the wilderness, and they roam the wilderness for uh, quite some time. They eventually find themselves in the promised land. And so God is, through Moses, this Mosaic law, God is, is instructing his people on how not to forget where they've come from and how to remember their history and how to see their newfound uh, land of milk and honey, how to see that for what it really is. Okay, so we keep reading. Go to the place your Lord God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God, that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. Verse 4. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. Verse 6. But the Egyptians mistreated us, this is slavery, and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt, this is the Exodus, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a great terror and signs and wonders, the plagues. Verse 9, he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing of milk and honey, the promised land. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. This is called Bikurim. It's the first fruit offering. The first fruit offering is a way to root God's people to God's goodness and never let them forget that the reason that they have a land flowing with milk and honey is because he rescued them from a land of deep slavery. 
And man, that'll preach for six weeks. We can do a whole series about how that's the reality of our spiritual lives as well. We don't have time for that today. What this is, is a practice. It's a principled practice rooting God's people to God's goodness. It's not a religious ritual. So people see this first fruits and an offering, and anytime money's involved, we make it a ritual. Well, it's something we have to do, and what's the minimum, and how does this work? And it says before tax or after tax, and come on. Like, like what's the thing God needs for, for goodness to be bestowed on me? It's not that. You look through the Old Testament, in some places it's a tenth. Give a tenth, and that's your first fruits. In other places, it's one-sixtieth, and that's your first fruits. Other places, it's everything. And sometimes they're brought on golden trays, and sometimes they're brought in, in baskets sewn out of reeds, just pulled from the side of the river. It's the reminder, simply, that their blessing is God's doing. The first fruits is their regular, principled, practiced reminder that God's blessing is this free gift bestowed upon them. It's a warring against the lie of self-reliance. If you have to give your first fruit of your crop, if you have to give the first bit of your crop, if you have to stop what you're doing and give of that, it reminds you that self-reliance is a lie. I didn't get here on my own. I'm not blessed here on my own. This is all because of some circumstance that I wasn't a part of that landed me here. In our modern world, a church has its own kind of foibles and, and we walk on eggshells a little bit talking about money. It's a, it's a thing, partly because religion tends to ritualize finance. And so it becomes a ritual, and then we get a little funny about it, and then churches make a big deal of giving. So you used to go to the priest and give him your, your first fruits, but we don't really have priests anymore. We're not an agrarian society that we need to, like, burn stuff at the altar. So then what do we do? Well, then we'll pass a plate, and that'll give everybody the opportunity to give their first fruits of their monthly labors. And then maybe that's how it'll work. But then that becomes ritualistic, and then you have guilt because you put in some, and then the person next to you, they put in more. And you know, you're trying to get change out of it, maybe, if you put in too much. And the whole thing gets awkward, and everybody just goes, I don't like any of this. And our culture has taken that on in, in church. So much so that the pendulum has swung, right? Remember when we passed the plate five minutes ago? No, we don't do that. We have two black boxes against the wall. We don't make a big deal out of it. We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. We never want someone to come in this church and think that, that finance has anything to do with the first and most important step of faith. It doesn't. But we're also not going to neglect the idea that God talks a whole lot about money, more about money than anything else in Scripture. Because money is one of the clearest roots to our hearts. And how we use our money, how we spend our money, what we do with our wealth, how we honor others with it, that's a clear representation of what's really going on inside of us. And so we can't, we can't lose one for the other. But the reality of our giving is no different than the first fruits giving in Deuteronomy. It's a reminder for us that all of our blessing is God's doing. In our modern church, especially a non-denominational church like us, that's important. It's important that when we see the construction out there, we realize all of our blessing is God's doing. It's God's giving to us and then people faithfully giving it on and seeing the work continue that a, a building that's getting up to be 40 years old is about to feel brand new inside. That's an exciting thing. But it doesn't happen because we have a home office in the Vatican or in Kansas City that's sending a check every month to make sure we stay current. There's no home office. Currently, there is no office if you've seen the place. There's nothing. The budget at Covenant Church is whatever goes into the black boxes. That's the budget. Well, how far will ministry go at Covenant Church? Well, it's as far as the funds will take it. For us, when we think about finances, we usually put it in this, this uncomfortable box. And we go, I just don't, 
let's talk about everything else. Leave that alone. That, that makes me uncomfortable. And yet when we're honest with ourselves, when we look at the scripture, we say, what does it mean to be an active participant in God's church? Whether you're a member, not a member, that's not what it, the church, the capital C church. There's a commitment that takes place between the believer and God. And that happens in the local church. People who are committed to the local church are physically committed. Physically committed, you're encouraged to be here. It matters that you're here. It matters that the person across the aisle sees you here. It matters that when someone's having a hard day, there's someone else there to console them. It matters. Being here is important. It's a physical commitment. It's not just being here, but then being active out there. That's how we're physically part of the church. We're spiritually part of the church. We're active in worship. We're active in prayer. That matters. We're communally committed. We meet in groups out in the community, and we strategize for ways to bless those around us. The community matters. And then we're financially committed. We bring our first fruits as an offering to see ministry go one step further and one step further and one step further. And in a a place like this, it's so incredible. It's so neat because you see generations being impacted. And and the generation that built this place is now having the joy of seeing their first fruits extended as the generation under them see ministry happen here. and and, And their grandchildren are being blessed here. We were walking around the other day, and uh, Craig Dixon, one of our elders, and um, Craig Dixon's not old enough to be one of the founding members of the church or anything, except he was absolutely here, so he just doesn't look it. And we're looking around the building, and the construction's gone, and the walls are being torn out, and there's a spot over here above this doorway It says Craig. And I was like, he didn't come up this week and write that. How old do you think that is? My wife says, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask. He said, I hoped his grandkids would see it. Like when all the elders and the members of this church years ago got second jobs so that, so that they could pay for a building in cash and, and not take on debt and be enslaved to that and yet put a place up that we could have a community gather and we could have a school and we could bless the, the whole of BG. Somebody thought, you know what, I, I hope my grandkids find this one day. I hope when they're renovating this place that they see my name and they remember that we sacrificed to put it up. I'm like, man, that's humbling. So this week, I'm going to come write my name everywhere. <laughs> You're all going to see it. That's why we commit to things. Because they outlast us. Because the kingdom goes forward. Because we can't take it with us. So why first fruit? No one is asking that question. I'm going to ask it for you. Why first fruit and not just some fruit? Bring your first fruit. It says, I think this matters. It's as if God knows the heart of his people. There's a story told in church on occasion of a man who uh, was fortunate enough that his, his prized cow was, was pregnant and was actually pregnant with twins. They were going to have two calves. And so the, the man with the cow birthing two calves is excited and he feels blessed by this. And he goes to his minister in this rural community they have, and he's overwhelmed with blessing. He goes, my, my cow, she's pregnant, but she's got two calves, and we're going to have two. And this overwhelming, I'm going to, you know, you get one healthy, you're lucky, but we're going to have two. And so I'm promising right here I'm going to give one of them to the church for whatever needs need to be met. It's a huge blessing. It's a huge gift. 50%, think about us. Give 50%. It's pretty good few days go by calves are born they're doing 
how things, I don't know what they do. If, as the days go by, things happen, life takes place, nature takes hold, and a minor tragedy strikes, and, and the farmer loses one of his cows. One of the calves dies. So now he has this cow, but he only has one calf. Not long after that, the minister comes to collect. He has his rope, and he's ready to get his 50% of this great blessing that God gave. And he walks up to the farmer, and the farmer goes, yeah, sorry, yours died. Isn't that convenient? And that's how we do it often. Which brings us to the power of planning. So what we're going to do is go through three quick ways that we can honor God with our wealth. um, And three requirements to do so. First of these requirements is planning. Honoring God with our wealth requires planning. What planning does is it subverts our impulse. You, you, what is the, the whole thing? You plan to succeed or you, or you fail to plan? Oh yeah, you either, I don't know, it doesn't matter. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I had good intentions about a line right there, but I don't remember it. So it subverts your impulse and it gets rid of the excuse. We all have the yours died excuse in us. It's not usually that exact uh, scenario. But I, I meant to have money to give to this. I meant to have time to give to you. I meant to help you move. I meant to help you. Oh, just sorry. I meant to. I had good intentions. We see this in our kids. They're wired up differently. I have two kids, nine-year-old and a six-year-old girl, and and one is wired. The older one is wired to save. She's just a saver. She literally brings me money when she feels like she has too much, and she goes, can you put this in a savings account so I can't touch it and so it can be in a safe spot? You're not normal. The other one comes to me and says, can you please show me my money? I need to buy some things, and I can't tell you what they are. And I go, you're not normal either. So as we told you, we were going to New York City. We had this road trip planned. And, and so the girls have been saving up their money because we're going to take them to buy overpriced things in an overpriced city. And, and so Bella, my older, has been saving her money. She has like hundreds of dollars socked away. But she goes, I don't want to take all of it because then I'll spend it. So let me just take a little bit. And I thought, of course, God bless me with you. And then my little one comes to me and she's six. And she goes, do you know where my money is? I said, yes, I've locked it in my closet so we can keep it so you can actually spend it once we get there. And she goes, yeah, but can I just have a little right now? And so every time she found any money, I'd open my closet, I'd get out the Ziploc bag that's hidden behind some things, and I'd put the money in there, and I'd say, you're not touching this. You, you will want this once you get to New York. And there's no great payoff to this story. She just squandered it in New York the same way she would have squandered it here, but she got to save it for a little bit. But her impulse is strong. Without planning, she would just spend it the second she got it. Not only does planning help you make the best use of your wealth, but Proverbs are clear that wealth is often gained through planning. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. So planning plus diligence equals profit. I told you this is not a prosperity gospel, but some of these principles are real. Some people were like, well, I'm planning to win the lottery and I'm diligent to buy a ticket. Does that count? <laughs> not so much. It's appropriate today. My, my father gave me some advice when I started working at 16. I got my first job. I had a variance of strange jobs, but a drugstore or a waiter on the river walk, different things. And, and one of the things he told me when I first started working is he said, if you just show up and work hard, you're ahead of 90% of the people out there. And I was like, that is terribly cynical. That can't be true. And it's absolutely true. It's proven true time and again that if you simply show up when you're supposed to and work hard, that you're ahead of 90% of the people. And that applied not just at the drugstore or not just at the Riverwalk. It applied in a Fortune 500 company. If you just show up and work hard, people are like, wow, 
what is in you? What, this is incredible. And you're like, I, you're paying me. I'm here for a reason. But it's over and over again. You find that. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. Diligence matters. Honoring God requires planning. The second thing, honoring God with our wealth requires humility. Humility. You'll never give to God your first fruits as long as he is second in life behind you. Say it again. You'll never give to God first fruits as long as he is second in line behind you. Or said another way, you cannot give to God what you've already consumed yourself. If I'm first, God gets whatever's left. And in months when nothing is left over, God gets nothing. And this is tricky because people are like, well, wait a minute. Does God need your money? No, no, no. God needs nothing. God is not wanting. And yet there's something crosswired in our heart when we look at it that way. Well, if God's sovereign, can he do it without my money? Absolutely. But if God wants to include you in the blessing of participation in his life-transforming work, and to watch your heart grow and your sanctification take place as a result of your participation in his work, to rob from God is to rob from ourselves. This requires deliberate humility. The words I've been using all week in my brain has been looking at this deliberate humility, deliberate humility. Most of us learn humility in trial. I have a friend right now who is jobless and has been jobless for a while, and he is being humbled. It's not fun. But that's different than deliberate humility, which is humility not in the depths of trial, but simply working to be humble in our everyday lives. Uh, I thought I grew up poor. And, and for those who did grow up poor, don't be offended. I, I thought I was with you. I wasn't with you. But I thought I grew up poor. I thought I was like, not desperately poor, but pretty close when I was growing up. I didn't know. My friends, I played basketball my whole life. My friends wore Air Jordans, and I was like an Air clearance racks. And Payless is having a sale, maybe today. It was always strange to me, like, why... My friends have nice stuff, and I don't have nice stuff. And my friends have the new stuff, and I don't have new stuff. And uh, comparing it, I wasn't living in a rich neighborhood. It's kind of an inner-city private school I went to that was uh, very, very, very blue-collar. And my friends all had nicer stuff than me, and they ate better stuff than we did. And they were, like, going to Pizza Hut, and we're going to Red Baron. And I was like, that's it's not, quite the, not quite the same. What I learned later is my dad was in the oil business. Oil business is famously um, good to people financially. And yet it's also really fickle. So when times were good, my dad was actually making a lot of money. When times go bad in the oil business, though, there is no money at all to be made. And so the principle he lived under was he refused to live on the good years. And so we deliberately lived below our means, well below our means, I later found out. And in deliberately living below our means, he was practicing deliberate humility so as to have the flexibility to do what God asked him to do later. And he didn't even know it at the time. So we didn't eat out much. And the one place we, I remember eating out at when we were little was called Po Folks. So if you need to know, that's about as rich as we got. Didn't have the coolest clothes, but we never missed a meal no matter how bad a downturn. We always had our needs met and learned the process of deliberate humility. Always had my needs met, which was interesting because my wants were very rarely met, I felt like. Which begs the question of wants versus needs. Why do you want what you want? Proverbs 12, 9 says, Better is he who is lightly esteemed, better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. Why do we want what we want is the question. Most of what we want, we want because it raises our status in the eyes of others. Like most of our stuff is about appearances. Most of it. 
there's many things I don't understand about women. We could write a long book and not even get close to all the things I don't understand about women. But can we talk about blue jeans for a minute? <sighs> Sometimes we'll be out at lunch and I'll look at my wife and I'll be like, can you tell me what's going on over there? And it'll just be a normal person. You know, they're in line at Panera. And I'm like, I just, I don't understand. What is happening? And she'll look over and she'll go, oh, those are mom jeans. Those are in again. I'll be like, what are mom jeans? And she goes, high-waisted tapered leg. It's a whole thing. It's back. I was like, you mean the jeans my mom wore in 1987, those are in again? She's like, oh yeah, those are all the rates. They're really expensive, but they're super in. And I just, like, my mind explodes every time because jeans, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like every three months, it changes. And I'm sorry for our women that we force you into this fashionable choice where every three months you're getting rid of perfectly good jeans to go buy different jeans with slightly larger legs or smaller legs or higher waist and lower waist. And you start looking at it, and jeans, like technology, are in this, like, this incredible cycle of obsolescence that just makes... It kind of makes me angry inside. Baggy jeans, bootcut jeans. I started listing relaxed fit jeans, flare leg jeans, bell-bottom jeans, skinny jeans, jeggings, which are just jeans made into leggings. Jean shorts, jean capris, jean jackets, jeans everything. Oh, you have a light wash jean jacket? Sorry, those are out. You're going to want to get the dark wash, acid wash. There's all the different washes. Now you can buy jeans with holes in them. Those are obviously more expensive than normal jeans because why would you want normal jeans? It's forced obsolescence. No, no shame. People are wearing jeans. They're like, okay. No shame. Just honesty. Fashion is this way. Technology is this way. Forced obsolescence. I bought a smartphone 18 months ago. Had to trade it in because it no longer worked. Because I kept sending updates that made my phone worse and worse. This is what they do. Silver is in. Or my wife would say rose gold is in. Or platinum is in. Or white gold is in. Whatever is in. We used to live in Johannesburg, South Africa, and, and De Beers, the, the global mining uh, cartel, basically, is, was five minutes from where we lived. And underground, there are billions of dollars of diamonds in these vaults underground. Behind heavy security, billions of dollars of diamonds. Because they know that by reducing uh, supply in the world marketplace, they can keep prices high. And so do you have a princess cut? Do you have a white diamond, black diamond? There's a chocolate diamond. I saw that on that Every Kiss Begins with K. Like all the different diamonds. And diamonds are cool and you have to leave them and they're so expensive and they're so rare. And then you live in South Africa and you see the people that, that go diamond mining and you're like, oh, your dad's a diamond miner? Like, yeah, they find a bunch every day and they're all in this vault. And you look it up on the internet and it's true. There's billions of dollars in diamonds and they just hold them back so that your diamond will be worth what you say it is. But if they release them all tomorrow, they're just rocks. But they've done a really good job of making us feel like they're the craziest, most precious thing in the world. They're so rare. But they're not. Again, no shame, just honesty. The job of the culture is to convince us that we want things we don't need and then to create a need in us to get the things we want. They take the thing we don't need and they create a desire and a want for it. And then once we have that want, then, then the want actually becomes its own need. I need to satisfy my wants. And so then that's how they get us into needing things. When we claim to need things we really just want, it's almost always a case of seeking deep fulfillment that can't be offered beyond Jesus. And that's hard, too. It's not a lot of fun to live with me. I can look at any possession in our house and look at this and be like, yep, that vacuum cleaner is just the need for cleanliness in our souls. And what we really need is, you know, and she's like, it's just a vacuum cleaner. When we claim to need things we really just want, it's almost always a case of seeking deep fulfillment that can't be found beyond Jesus. Our money reflects our heart. God's, honoring God uh, with our wealth requires planning. It requires humility. Third and final thing, honoring God with our wealth requires generosity. Proverbs eleven twenty five. A generous person will prosper. 
Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Proverbs eleven twenty five: a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Quite clearly, we are called to live generously. The diagnostic of the heart is this. Do you feel more pain when you give or when you don't have anything to give? Do you feel more pain when you give or when you're unable for whatever reason to give? I got a call this week from a friend in South Africa. Uh, We've known for a long time, a single mother of four who's been through just circumstances that would take uh, years to explain and still wouldn't paint the picture of kind of the, uh, the tragedy of her situation. She and her four kids, uh, at their lowest point, they live in a squatter camp, a tin shack, uh, four kids and her in about 300 square feet total of tin and cardboard. This is their daily existence. It's what they know. There's millions of people living that way, so she's not special, but she's our friend. She got a job through uh, somebody that she went to church with. They got her a cleaning job. She was able to kind of step up into a, a normal-sized apartment with her children, a normal size for her being probably seven or 800 feet, square feet, but something with electricity, with running water, big deal. So we get a call this week that she's three months behind on rent because the people that she was caring for died and her job is gone and there's 40% unemployment and so what can I do? And she said, I tried everywhere else. I'd never want to call you guys for money because I love you, but I, I'm out of options. And I'm watching my wife deal with this. I'm, I'm letting Steph deal with this. And the great pain for her is we talk through the options to, to help our friend and her children, and find them a place to live, and yet not enable them to make terrible decisions. As we got to a place, and we were praying about it, and we just said, you know, I think God wants us to help her future, not erase her past. And so as we explain this to her, we go, look, we think you probably are living in a place that's outside of your means, and there's no sustainable plan to get you making that anymore, and and you could, but you can't anymore, and so we want to help you, but we want to help you in your next place. Like, Like, let us pay for months of rent going forward, but let us not pay for your months of rent going back and then have you get evicted next week anyway. And she goes, no, but I I need, that is my plan. And we're like, "That's, that's not a good plan. And so we're wrestling with this person who we love, and Steph gets off the phone, and she is just like devastated. And her heart is seen most clearly. She's devastated not because... Not because her friend is hurting. That's hurtful. She's devastated because in the moment, she couldn't give to this person. We have the money to give her, but she didn't give. She's saying, we will eventually. We're going to make it right with her. We're going to see her through. But it's so hard to hang up the phone and not say the money's on its way. And I said, your heart's in the right place then. Your heart is desiring generosity. We're going to get there eventually. We're going to do it the right way. We're going to help her learn what it means to plan and start applying some of these principles. And we're going to help. She's not going to be on the street, and her kids aren't going to be hungry. We're going to make sure. But for her to hang up the phone without being able to say the money's on its way was just devastating. Do you feel more pain when you give or when you don't have anything left to give? When it leaves your hand, is that more hurtful than when you're not able to say it's on its way? Reality is generous people are content people. And content people are generous people. Why? Maybe this is the whole key if you remember nothing else today. Generous people are content people, and content people are generous people because the wealth you have no longer owns you. When you're generous, the wealth you own no longer owns you. To say it another way, to give away what we own is the surest way to be certain it doesn't own us. To give away what we own is the surest way to be certain it doesn't own us. Watching my kids in New York City for the week, they have their money now. They can do whatever they want with it. 
And yes, they're buying overpriced M&Ms and silly souvenirs, and they're also on the subway. Every, every few feet, there's some other performer doing something. And so my wife and I are walking quickly, and we look back, and, and our six-year-old is watching the guy playing the steel drums. And she's looking at him, and she gets closer to him, and she starts reaching in her purse, and she pulls out money, and I'm like, there it goes. And I should celebrate that. But the generosity of spirit, she feels, it doesn't own her. She feels free to give it away because it doesn't own her. And ultimately, that's not even about that. It's about how secure she is and the fact that she has another meal coming. We're most generous when we're most secure. My kids aren't worried about their next meal. They're not worried about whether or not they're going to have a souvenir. They're not worried about whether or not, they're not worried. They have ultimate security knowing that their next day is covered. Therefore, when the, the feeling of generosity strikes them, they don't have to weigh it out versus whether they need more in their bank account or more in that person's open guitar case or in the person's open violin case or in the person's cup as they walk down the middle of the aisle. They have ultimate security and so they have ultimate freedom. We are most generous and we are most secure and we are most secure when we recognize that God's generosity is ultimately in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the first fruits, which means God gave us his first and his best. We didn't get the leftovers. Jesus wasn't God's backup plan. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And it redefines what wealth even is. Though Jesus, who had everything, king, creator, got off the throne and became poor for us, he did so that we might become rich. Infinitely wealthy, Christ gave it all in a deliberate and humble and radical generosity. And so the truth of the morning is that we are richest when we are in step with him. We are richest when we are in step with him. So here we are. How do we apply this? Well, this, this all makes sense, but how do I apply this? Like, what are the steps I can take? The first question I think we can ask ourselves is, are we, getting, are we giving off the top? Or are we giving of our leftovers? Are we giving our first fruits or whatever's left at the end? Are we planning to give? Oops, yours died. Or do we have a giving plan that matters? Technology makes this easy. I, anybody who sits here for any number of weeks will know I, me and technology don't get along real well. And yet, in this one area, technology has been a huge blessing. I am very likely to forget my checkbook on any given Sunday, but I'm never likely that the automatic payment that comes out of my checking account every month for my tithe, my offering, my first fruits that comes out, whether I remembered it or not, and then I see it and I go, oh, yeah, that's how I give. And what's interesting about it for me is it reminds me every month of God's blessing. Even the auto draft out of my checking account reminds me of God's blessing. Reminds me that I ended up here not because I was smarter than everybody else or I was more clever and, and God wanted to give me the perfect job with the perfect people in the perfect community, although you are that. That God plucked me out of literally a burning church and dropped me here. I had nothing to do with it. We tell anybody who asks, how did you get here? We go, we had a list of all the cities we wanted to be in. And Bowling Green had never entered our mind. And now that we're here, I can't imagine being anywhere else. So every month when that offering comes out, when that money disappears, and I see it, 
That's my reminder that God's blessing is not my doing. Asking the question, are you saying, I mean, are you saying it or are you not saying it? Are you saying we should give to the church? Yeah, that's part of the application. Part of the application. We have a friend who argued with me vehemently that I shouldn't give out of my salary. He goes, well, that doesn't make any sense. In the Old Testament, they brought the offering to the priest so the priest could eat. And so, you know, it's different, but you're kind of like the church pays you and then you take some of the money they give you and you give it back to the church. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. You're just taxing yourself. And he was real practical about it. And it was a really nice idea. I'd like to have the money. And ultimately I said, but I, that doesn't make any sense to me principally because we're all ministers. We're all ministers. Every member of the church is a minister. Every follower of Christ is a minister. We are all missionaries and ministers. And the fact that I get paid to be here a few more hours a week than you and to administrate some things and to advocate for different things and to help and lead us in service in different ways, that's its own separate thing. But we're all ministers. So I can't call the church to be physically committed and communally committed and financially committed if I'm not financially committed. So I'm financially committed. I preach this to you because I do it myself. You ask the elders, you can go find Craig and say, does he really give? Is this real? Is it like 2%? Is it 10%? You can ask him. And he's free to tell you. I call you to it because I believe in it. That being part of the body is to be financially committed to the body. The local church is God's strategy for reaching the world. For reaching the hurting and for showing Jesus to be the ultimate healing. That is the local church. And so Without shame, I say, yeah, this is part of our financial responsibility. This is part of the blessing that God has given us wealth for. What if I give to other organizations, though? Like, what if I give to crew, and I give to Young Life, and I give to this thing in Africa, and I give to this thing in South America? Yes. Yes. Do that, too. We do. Do that. There are a lot of worthy causes. The challenge you would be to talk about it be intentional in your home about it, to talk to your friends about it, to raise awareness for it, to make a big deal of it. Not the big deal that this is how much we give, but big deal this cause is worthy of our attention. Because that passes on the blessing. That's us writing Craig up on the wall of our kids' lives and our grandkids. So when my child drops her $5 bill into the steel drummer's case, That's more than a donation to a subway performer. That's an indication that generosity is sinking into her heart and she's getting it. And so when we give, let's give intentionally and let's give out loud for others not to see how generous we are, but to know that the things we care about matter. Ultimately, we are given wealth so that we can give it away. In a world where wealth is a tempting God of its own, where status drives us and greed and materialism quietly breed dissatisfaction and discontentment in our souls, our response is to give. So I asked the same question I asked at the beginning. What if generosity was the cure to your discontentment? Because to give away what we own is the surest way to be certain it doesn't own us. Because every single one of us will face a day when health is failing, when the end seems near. And you've seen Schindler's List. You've seen Brewster's Millions. You've seen it displayed in Hollywood. You cannot take it with you. So find the worthy place to start practicing biblical 
life-giving, life-affirming, life-transforming generosity. And if that's 1% here and 50% out there, awesome. And if it's 0% here because you're not a member here and you don't want to be, that's cool too. Because God is sovereign and God is faithful. And this place has been sustained. So my challenge to you is to begin to intentionally live generously. And then to recognize that the scripture, when it says to honor the Lord with your wealth, the second half of the verse says, if you give your first fruits, your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim with new wine. And we recognize that the blessing we have, the gift that we've been given, the wealth that we own, is in the salvation we have in Christ. And so to give away what we own to make sure it doesn't own us is a reconnection to the fact that we are owned by the King and we are identified as sons and daughters of the Most High, that grace is ours and it is overflowing. And if you want to feel grace in your life, I would challenge you to give and see if it doesn't increase. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you were first generous with us. God, you opened the gates to wealth unimaginable. You sacrificed beyond what we can uh, conceive of, and in Christ, you've given us everything. So, Father, my prayer is that we would not uh, hear today and and read the scripture and and think about money and chalk it away as some sort of uh, financial message or fundraising scheme. Father, my, my prayer is that each individual heart here would do uh, self-evaluation. God, that we would be sober and thinking about our own hearts and our own generosity and whether or not we look more like you or less today. God, if we hold our things too closely, if, if we hold our things too tightly, Father, if it hurts us more to give than it does to not be able to anymore, I pray that each of us on our journey will find your truth to be real in their lives. Each of us on our journey will find generosity and know that the greatest, greatest, greatest joys are in giving. That thing we experience as parents on Christmas. Father, make that real in our everyday. That thing of watching someone else reap the benefit of our diligence or our planning. And then God, remind us that no matter how diligent we are, ultimately, all the blessings flow from you. Father, I pray that we would be people encouraged by your generosity, that we would be overwhelmed by your generosity, that we would root ourselves in you and you alone, and that we would remember that you first gave to us. So as we open-handedly go out into this world and we seek the hurting and the lost, Father, it wouldn't be out of any sort of religious imperative or ritual. God, it wouldn't be out of some sort of moral obligation, but Father, we'd feel freedom to give as you first gave. Thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you that at times it challenges and it's hard. We know that hard things make us better. So God, grow us and stretch us and find us to look more like you tomorrow than we did today. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and the ultimate generous gift that he is. We pray in his name. Amen.